Well, greetings to you on this March 29th, the third Sunday of our coronavirus isolation as a church, and the fifth Sunday in the season of Lent. It's hard to believe that Easter is just two Sundays away, and in preparation to celebrate the resurrection, we've been on a spiritual journey. Beginning with Ash Wednesday, we've been savoring the last seven words or phrases of Jesus as he died on the cross. So far, we've explored five, and as a way to engage with the series, why don't you see if you can remember the five we've covered so far? This might be a good exercise to just jog your memory and prepare you to enter into this new text today, or as a way to engage young listeners, if they're among you. Uh, Extra credit if you get them in order, and extra, extra credit if you feel like sharing which word of Jesus has been most impactful for you during this season in your life. So again, see if you can list the first five words of Jesus from the cross in order, and if comfortable, share in a journal or out loud which of those words has touched you most during this season. Go ahead and press pause and then restart when you're ready. Okay, welcome back. Let me just list out those first five words of Jesus for you in order. Um, The first word is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Second word is, today you will be with me in paradise. The third is, Mother, behold your son. And then to John, he says, Behold your mother. Number four is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And last week, we covered the fifth word, which is, I thirst. Today, we're going to look at Jesus' sixth word from the cross, It is finished. Let me read it to you in context. And if you want to follow along, I'm reading John 19, verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are unsettled. We're scared. We don't know so many things about how all of this is going to end. You said it is finished, but it feels a lot more like we're finished. Or at least we we finished being in control. We don't know what our lives will be like three months from now, let alone tomorrow. But I guess if we're honest, we never really did. We never truly had control over our destiny. But we're choosing to believe, to have faith, even faith as small as a virus, that you are in control. We choose to believe, at least we want to believe, that when you say it's finished, it is. And that whatever the it is that is finished, it is good news even today. Especially today. Spirit of the living God, open your word up to us and speak to us for such a time as this. Amen. When we listen to Jesus' sixth word from the cross, it is finished, we want to know what is finished. Our minds start working overtime to figure out what the it is that is finished, and we begin to, to speculate. Maybe we think Jesus' suffering was finished, or Jesus' alienation from the Father was finished. 
Maybe we heard somewhere that death is finished and it goes on and on. And if we're not careful, we begin to import all kinds of ideas and to put them into the mouth of Jesus so that we create meaning from his sixth word on the cross rather than just listening to it. Let's take a deep breath and trust that Jesus knew what he meant when he spoke that word from the cross. Let's trust that the reason he said it was so that we would know what he meant. And let's trust his authorized storytellers, the apostles, to clearly communicate what Jesus meant. So who's telling the story? John. And what do we know about John's presentation of Jesus? We know that John begins his gospel with the same words that Genesis begins in Genesis 1, with the words, in the beginning. But whereas Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on to say that Jesus is the Word who is God, and that Jesus created all things. That's how John, the narrator, the author of the Gospel of John, begins his work. Now, the first character in John's gospel to describe Jesus is a different John, John the Baptizer. In John 1.29, John the Baptizer sees Jesus and declares about him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we know from throughout John's gospel that Jesus is the I Am. He is identifying as one with the Father. And we know that he came to all those who are destined for death, that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Now, back to our passage. It is finished. When does this happen? Like, when does this scene take place? It takes place on the day of preparation for the Passover. Take a moment to recall what the Passover is all about. If you need help, you can reference Exodus chapter 12. If you've got kids out there uh, in your in your house, uh, maybe you kids can tell someone in the room uh, what the Passover was all about. Take a moment and then restart the podcast when you're ready. Okay, we're back and we were discussing the Passover, right? Let me just recap that in, that uh, scene a little bit. Back when Israel were captives in the land of Egypt, God heard their cries and set out to deliver them. He sent various plagues like the swarms of flies and frogs and locusts and all kinds of gross things over the Egyptians in an effort to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But with each plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart more and more so that God would eventually send a horrible last plague to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. God was going to take the firstborn of every person in Egypt— but he offered to rescue the Israelites, or rather, to have the angel of death pass over their homes. He told them to sacrifice a perfect lamb for every family or for every household, and to smear some of the blood on the, of the lamb over the top of the doorframe of their homes. They were to prepare unleavened bread because all of this would happen so fast that they wouldn't have time for leavened bread. The blood of the lamb would mark them as God's property, and he would rescue them. Now, when did Jesus die, according to John's gospel? According to John, and this is no accident, 
He dies right as the Passover lambs on the day of preparation would have been slaughtered in Israel. John's Gospel has Jesus as the sacrificial lamb for the Passover. It is finished. The last Passover lamb ever had just been given to redeem God's people. But this time, it wasn't just an animal. It was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No more sacrifices needed, ever. Now, hold that thought, because it gets even more outrageous. Remember that scripture reading we had earlier in the liturgy? Yeah, the weird one from Genesis 15? That's the one. Uh, You may have been wondering, like, is this some kind of joke to make my kids ask me weird theological questions about the Bible that I can't answer? Um, Sorry, no, that wasn't my point. Let me briefly break down Genesis 15, and then let's bring this thing home. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah are still childless. At least they're still childless. Um, They've not made a child, just the two of them. Abraham is old, and he's discouraged. So God comes to him to comfort him. And he tells Abraham that not only is he going to be the father of a child with Sarah, but that their descendants would spread throughout the world. God is entering into a promise with Abraham, a covenant, and he has him do what they did in the ancient world when kings would make covenants with their loyal subjects. This is weird. Just stick with me. What they would do is they would cut up animals. Of course, like you do, right? Uh, Anyway, so Abraham cut up some animals and split them in half with like this walkway in between them. So if you imagine there's a path and on one side, like the right side of the path is the right half of a bull. And on the left side of the path is the left half of a bull. And you can read the animals that he sacrifices in Genesis 15. And you can just see, imagine the pieces on either side of that path. Now, in a typical covenant ceremony, the king would have the subject, uh, in this this scene it would be Abraham, the weaker one, would walk between the cut-up animals as if to say with their physical body, if I don't live up to my covenant, if I break my oath, my agreement with the king, then I will become like these animals. I will take the punishment of the king, and that's going to be death. But in this story, before Abraham can walk the gauntlet of grossness, I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist, he falls into a deep sleep. In this sleep, it is very dark, just like when the sun was blocked for three hours as Jesus hung on the cross. I'm just saying. And it ends up that God speaks and God shows Abraham something. God speaks to Abraham, telling him that in the future, his people would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but that after that time, God would come and deliver them. And then he shows Abraham something in the vision. He shows him an image of a smoking oven and a flaming torch passing right between the animals, right between the very animals that Abraham should have been walking through as the weaker member of the covenant. God speaks, and God shows. What is God speaking about? He's speaking about his loyalty to his people, that he would rescue his covenant people even if they were rebels against him, even if they were held captive by their own sin. We're talking about Passover. And what is God showing? 
Well, after the Passover, when the people are in the wilderness, remember in Exodus, God himself comes to dwell among them. And how does he come in that passage? He comes as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. So in Abraham's vision, when you have smoke and fire passing between the animals, it is God who takes the weaker role by passing through the path of the dead animals. In other words, God is saying that if human beings break the covenant, he won't make them suffer the full consequences. He would take that on himself, like the Passover lamb, like Jesus on the cross. I'm getting goosebumps preaching this, and I'm the one who wrote the sermon. This is such good stuff. It is finished. It is completed. With Jesus' death on the cross, God has taken all the sin of the world. He's taken our collective sins. He's taken all of our unfaithfulness and placed it on himself. This is what John is trying to tell us. This is what John is saying Jesus means when he says, It is finished. There's so much more to say about this scene, but for these shorter coronavirus sermons, I'm going to bring this to a close sooner than later. And there's two things I really want to drive home, and their ideas summed up well in two quotes. The first is a quote from Fleming Rutledge. She writes, There is no aspect of Christian faith more difficult for us to believe. It is in the nature of the human being to think that Christ's work could not possibly be finished, that we have to do more, that we have to add to it, that we have to earn it. I encourage you this week to sit with the idea of Jesus finishing the sacrifice. Do you believe it? Where are you still trying to earn favor with God? What would it look like to place your striving at his feet? We should all be honest about our frailty, about our own contributions to the sin of the world. But in light of Jesus taking on the sin of the world, including your personal sin and failure, take a moment to silently confess that to Jesus, to boldly approach Jesus, who spared nothing so that you might be free from guilt and shame and that you might have eternal life. The second quote is from Richard John Niehaus. He writes, In a cruciform world, the cross is the epicenter of everything. It is finished does not mean that suffering and loss and the rivers of tears are things of the past. It is finished means that they do not have the last word. It means that love has the last word. We all know pain, loss, suffering, and disappointment. As if we needed a reminder, the coronavirus has brought the whole world to its knees. The world infected by sin is a real problem. But because it is finished, because of Jesus on the cross, not even death will have the final word. So I encourage you to share with the Lord or with those around you how Jesus finishing it on the cross can change your approach to life. In other words, Jesus has died for us, right? If he's taken away our shame, if he's granted us eternal life, if there's ultimately nothing to fear, 
then how might that change who you live for and how you invest your life? Yes, in in the world, we have great challenges. In fact, Jesus calls these challenges oppressive tribulation in John 16. But he also says, take heart. I have overcome the world. It is finished.